0: Amen. Thank you for being here to worship with us. You know, most stories tend to begin at the beginning of the story and then they kind of move in a linear direction and then you have the ending. Every once in a while you'll have a story, I think especially of some movies that I'm aware of, where the story begins at the end of the story. The movie begins at the end and it sort of shows you, here's where we're going and it piques your curiosity. You know, How are they going to get there? And then the whole rest of the movie sort of takes you back and shows you how they got there. And I mention this because that's similar to what we're going to do this morning. We're going to go to the end of the story, the end of the book of Joshua. We are going through a different book of the Bible each Sunday. We're in Joshua today, but we're going to fast forward and look at the end where Joshua is about to die. So he's giving this kind of final speech uh, before he dies. Very similar to what we saw last week with Moses giving this sort of final farewell speech before he dies. And we're going to look at the end, and then we're going to sort of rewind and see how we got there. So if you would, please turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 24. If you are able, I'm going to ask you to please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read Joshua 24, beginning in verse 12. And this is the very inspired Word of our God. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites, it was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of the vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods, for it is the Lord our God who brought us out and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who live in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord for He is our God. But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord for He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve and His voice we will obey. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful. You are not silent. You have spoken. Now we pray that You'd give us ears to hear and may we respond faithfully like these people in this text who say, Your voice we will obey. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So I want to make three observations of this passage, uh, which are ultimately three observations of the book of Joshua. First of all, God is the king who fights for his people. They are in this land. It's a land that God promised them going all the way back to Abraham. They've finally taken the land. They're in the land. Uh, Joshua is looking back at all of the victories of war and the victories and how God gave them this land. And he's, he's reminding them. He's emphasizing God's role in this. God gave you this. For example, verse 12, God says, I sent the hornet before you. God went ahead preemptively so that the people could take the land. Verse 18, the Lord is the one who drove out before us all the peoples. In verse 12, he says, it was not by your sword or your bow. Think about that. The reality is they did use their own sows and their own, their own bows and their own swords. Uh, so he's not saying you didn't use them at all because they clearly did. So what's he saying? You know, you, you fought, but it was the Lord. It was not by your weaponry. It was the Lord. And if the Lord hadn't done it, you wouldn't be in the land now. In verse 17, he talks about just as God was the one who brought them out of Egypt. So he's the one who gives them this land. And if you think about it, the giving of the land in some ways is even a more powerful miracle than the deliverance from Egypt. Egypt is one nation. Egypt simply said, you guys can leave. Like, go, get out of here. And they left. And it was miraculous. I'm not downplaying it. But what I'm emphasizing is the taking of somebody else's land. Like people who live there, fortified cities, and not just one but one place in Joshua, Joshua 12, 24, it says there were 31 kings who were defeated in the process. Uh, Joshua 23:10 says, one of you puts to flight a thousand of them. But clearly, God is the one who's doing this. And if he wasn't doing this, there's no way they could have taken all of these cities, all of this land, all of these kingdoms. The book can be divided into four different sections. Chapters 1 through 5 are about crossing the Jordan and entering into the land. Chapters 6 through 11 are about taking the land. And you see that word take quite a bit. They take the land. You see the the phrase crossing over quite a bit in chapters 1 through 5. You see the phrase taking in chapters 6 through 11. And then in chapters 12 through 22, it's a strong emphasis on the dividing up of the land and allotting. You see the word allot. Quite a few times. Who are they allotting it to? The various tribes. Twelve tribes are given specific pieces of land. It's very important. So there's a lot of attention given to the detail there. And then chapters 23 through 24 are this call to serve God in the land. Now you're in the land. Now obey. Now serve. Now be faithful. But I want to just kind of highlight and lean into this emphasis of God Taking the land for his people and fighting on behalf of his people. We see his sovereignty as the warrior king victorious th- throughout the book. For example, back in chapter 5, there's this fascinating story where Joshua is standing outside the city, you know, probably preparing for the battle the next day. And by the way, he's, this is probably not the first time he's been there. He's been there before as a spy, uh, you know, a younger person spying out the land, and now here he is. We're about to take it. And he comes across this warrior who has his sword drawn. You know, somebody's walking around uh, on the day before a battle with a sword drawn. uh, That's not the kind of thing where you just say, hey, how are you doing? Good to see you. What are you up to out here? You know, this is like somebody walking around with a drawn gun. You don't say, how are you doing? This is serious. And so Joshua asks the question, whose side are you on? Do you fight for us or do you fight for them? And this, this warrior says, no. Uh, like Neither. I'm not going to answer your yes-no question. It's not, that's not the answer. I am the commander of the Lord's army. And the question is, are you on my side? Are you on God's side? And it says that Joshua bows down to him. Now, who, who, do you, who, who is worthy of bowing down to? Only God. So this is God showing up on the battlefield the day before the battle and, and, and revealing himself in this very unique way as a warrior to Joshua. And what is he saying? I am about to fight this battle for you. I'm about to give you victory. I'm the one who's going before you in this war. And we see that evidenced or illustrated in the next chapter, Joshua 6, where you have this incredible story, this incredible strategy of the people marching around seven times. You know the story, right? Blowing the horns and then yelling, and then taking the city. Now, in any other context, that's not a very good strategy for war. You know, if you're following somebody who says, here's our strategy, I, th- I think I'm going to follow somebody else. Unless, unless, and this is a big unless, unless you're on God's side, and He's the one who tells you this is the strategy. And then it's the most brilliant strategy in the world. <laughs> of course this is what we do. But what, what, what does it illustrate? March around seven times, blow the trumpets, yell, God is the one doing this. There's no other explanation for this. We also see God causing the sun to stand still in Joshua 10. I don't know exactly how that worked, how that happens you know, on a scientific level. I don't know, but I just trust that God's Word says it, so I believe it. The sun stood still. Joshua 10.14 says, "...there has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel." Notice that phrase, the Lord fought for Israel. We're going to see that phrase three more times in the book of Joshua. The Lord fought for Israel. And when God's the one fighting for you, you're in pretty good shape. You're in pretty good hands. But it does raise this huge question, a huge ethical question that people have wrestled with for centuries and debated and written about. Is this justified? Is this justified? is this right is this fair how are we supposed to think about this i mean this is this is not their land it's somebody else's land somebody else has built these cities and these walls and now they're taking it you know if you're familiar with the justified theory of war a just theory of war is typically defensive in nature you only go to war when you're defending something you don't you don't go on offense unnecessarily and this is anything but a defensive battle. This is very offensive. This is go take their land and make it yours. And so it raises big questions, and I'm going to attempt to respond to some of that. Uh, First of all, let's remind ourselves who this is that's giving the land. It's God, the creator king, who owns everything. So if you're the owner of the land, if you're the owner of everything, you get to decide whose land it is. And we talked about this day one. If God's the king who owns it all, then all along the way in the story, when we have these little times, when we say, wait a minute, how can that be right? How can that be fair? You just come back and go, if he's the creator king, you know, we may not fully understand it all, but we can at least say, okay, he's God. I'm not. It's his land. He owns it all. If he wants to give this particular land to these particular people, I mean, that's his divine prerogative. A second uh, response I would have is that God, the Bible teaches God is going to bring all people under judgment. All people are one day going to stand before the judge, and all people one day are going to experience eternal heaven or eternal hell as a result of the judgment. And so, in one sense, what we have here is is judgment just happening a little earlier. The, the judgment's just coming a little sooner, similar to what we saw with the flood. Right? With the flood, when God floods the world, what's He doing? He's judging the sin, He's judging the world. So it's, it's punishment, it's judgment that comes a little sooner than we, we might have known or expected. And so, um, you know, if, if you are okay and understand and affirm the doctrine of hell, then you're going to be able to understand this and be okay with this at some level. And if you're not okay with this, it probably also reveals you're not okay with the teaching about that the Bible's teaching about hell, and my recommendation would be focus on that. The, the more central issue is the doctrine of hell. Come to grips with that, and I think if you can come to grips with it, then, then this, this will be a secondary issue for you that you, you'll be able to you know, ultimately be okay with. Uh, some people are critical of this story because they say this represents a type of, an example of ethnic cleansing where you have one ethnic group going in and taking out another ethnic group, and some people say this is promoting some type of ethnic cleansing. Well, here's the problem with that reading. Here's the problem with that interpretation. God is going to be equally judgmental, or He's going he's to bring equal judgments against His people, Israel, as He does against anyone else, and maybe even stricter judgments against His own people. And we see that, for example, in Joshua 7 with the story of Achan who sins and therefore God takes him out and not just him, but other Israelites as well. Also, I want to point out that God's people, here's a spoiler alert, so if you don't want to spoil the rest of the story, you know, plug your ears here. God's people are going to be judged in the same kind of way as the Canaanites and they're going to be removed from the land too. And, and the Assyrians and the Babylonians are going to come in and exile them. So this is not about ethnicity per se. This is not about race per se. This is about faithfulness to God the King. And one great illustration or example of that is in Joshua chapter 2 where we have this story of this woman named Rahab. Rahab is a pagan from the city of Jericho, and in addition to that, she's a prostitute. And she and her family are spared from the destruction that comes against Jericho. And even more than spared, they are actually brought in and grafted in to Israel. They become a significant part of the story of Israel. In fact, she's mentioned three times in the New Testament. And one of the times that she's mentioned, she's mentioned as the great-great-grandmother of King David. So that means she's in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Think about that. A pagan prostitute from Jericho is a part of the lineage of Jesus Christ. Wow. And she's also mentioned in Hebrews and James for her faith. Her faith is commended. Follow the example of Rahab. So here's the point. It's not so much about being a descendant of Abraham per se. It's about having faith in the God of Abraham and becoming a son of God and a son of Abraham through faith. And she's commended for that faith. And here's the point. If we live with faith in the God of Abraham, then, then we have a king who fights for his people. And we can be encouraged by that. I don't know if you've seen this commercial. I get a kick out of it every time I hear it or see it. There's a group of kids playing pickup basketball. There's just a handful of them, probably 10 years old. They're on a basketball court. And Charles Barkley, a former NBA player, is among them. And uh, two of the kids are captains, and they're picking their sides for their teams. And the girl goes first, and she says, I pick Charles Barkley. And he responds and says, yes! And he points to another little kid. He says, I told you she'd pick me first. And he's on her team. And then at the end of the commercial, you hear him saying, all right, here's the game plan. Just pass me the ball every time. And uh, (laughs) it's funny because, you know, it's obviously not really you know, an even match, right? If you've got Charles Barkley and all the rest of you are 10 years old, uh, this isn't a real even match. You know who's going to win. and you know, Of course, they're going to pass him the ball. Of course, they're going to win. You don't even have to have a strategy. You know, this, is, this is a no-brainer. And I think it's a similar point that's being made in the book of Joshua. God is going to win. And if you're on his side, guess what? You're going to win in the end. He wins in the end. It's just, it's just a no-brainer. He wins in the end. And if you're on His side, you win in the end. If you're on the side of the one who can make the sun stand still, you're going to win. Right? And maybe you need to be reminded of this this morning. Maybe life, frustrating, tired, you feel you know, like just defeat after defeat after defeat, and you just start to feel that, and after a while, that just kind of gets you down. And maybe you just need to be reminded today, He's the King. He's in control. He wins. He cares. He's with you. If you're on the side of the king, you win. And so delight in that. Enjoy that. Be encouraged by that. Maybe maybe you're in the middle of health issues right now. Maybe you have a loved one who's in the middle of health issues. Maybe you have a loved one that you've just lost uh, to sickness and ultimately death. Well, be reminded... He is with you. And even even death can't separate you from Him. Even death can't separate us from the love of God and Jesus Christ. Nothing can separate you from the King. If you are His, because He wins in the end, you win in the end. And so be encouraged, be reminded, God is the King who fights for His people. Second, God's people live like He is the King. You know, going back to the example of the commercial, if you take the team that has Charles Barkley on their team, if those kids were sort of nervous before the game or playing, with, oh, I'm not sure if we're going to win or not. I'm scared. I'm nervous. Are we going to win? That would be silly. Like, of course you're going to win. you got an NBA player on your team and the rest of you are 10 years old. You don't have to be nervous. Like Just enjoy the game. Just enjoy getting to play with a former NBA player who can be funny at times, right? And so how much more so should we live like people who know and live for the victorious king. What does it look like for us to live life knowing we are on the side of the one who in the end is victorious? Well, Joshua tells them what to live like. Look at Joshua 24, verse 14. He says, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. So he says, fear Him and serve Him. Fear the Lord and serve Him. And he goes on in in verse 15 and he says, I'm not sure what you guys are going to choose, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that word serve is very important. You see it 16 times in Joshua 24 alone serve the Lord. There's not a great deal of difference between serving and fearing. They're closely related. And here's why. You will serve whatever it is you fear. So whatever you're afraid of right now, that's what you're serving. So it's good to identify. What am I afraid of? What do I have nightmares about? What keeps me up at night worried? That's what you're afraid of. And it's good to identify that. What is it for you? For some people, it's Success. I have to be successful. I'm scared to death of not being successful and seen as successful and having stuff and having money. And that's what scares some people. I've got to be successful. And therefore, they serve that fear. They do whatever it takes. They're driven by it. They're consumed by it. I must be successful. And therefore, they work all the time. For example... Some people are afraid of, of not being liked. I'm afraid I'm not going to be liked. I'm afraid I'm not going to be popular. I'm afraid of what people are going to think about me. And that's their greatest fear. And therefore, they serve that fear. You serve what you're afraid of. So you, they do what it takes to try to be liked. And they worry about that. Am I liked? What did he mean when he said that? What did she mean when she said that? Do they really like me? Do they not? And it, it consumes them. And he's saying here, let your greatest fear be that you please the Lord. Let that be what keeps you up at night. Am I being faithful? Am I I being honoring to Him? Am I living like He's a victorious King? Let that be what consumes you. That's what it means to fear God. Your greatest concern is not being faithful to Him. And if you're driven by that, I just want to be faithful, guess what? You're going to serve that and you're going to be faithful. You're going to be faithful to Him. We also see that love is connected to all this. We're called to love Him. Last week, we said Deuteronomy 6.4, the greatest commandment in the Bible, according to Jesus. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So love, loving God, is also closely related to fearing Him and serving Him. Because whatever whatever you fear, that's what you love. Whatever you're serving, that's what you love. You prove it by what you give your time to. So once again, identify. What is it that you're afraid of? Let's go back to the, 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 the example of the... You want to be successful. I'm afraid of not being successful. Well, what does that reveal that your heart... What does that reveal that you love? What does that reveal you long for? You long for, you love the idea of success. I just want to be successful. If I'm just successful, then I will have arrived. Then I will have made it. So you serve that. So whatever you fear is the same thing that you love. It's the same thing that you're serving. And you can know by what you're giving your time to. Energy and worrying about. Go to the example of, I just want to be liked, I just want to be popular. You're afraid of not being liked. It reveals this, you love the idea of being liked. You love it, you long for it. I just want everybody to like me. So I'm afraid of not being liked, and therefore I'm going to serve that cause. And he's telling us here, develop this love for God, so that a love for God fear of god serving god is what takes over look, look look with me for example at Joshua 23 verse 11 he says be very careful therefore to love the lord your god think about that he's telling them to be careful be careful that you love god in other words it's not automatic It's not just, do you love God or do you not? Check the box yes, check the box no. It's be careful. It's a daily thing, constantly. Chris, you need to be careful that you are are fearing God and God alone. Chris, you need to be careful that you are loving Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and not something else in His place. So that Chris, you need to make sure you're serving Him. Be careful to love the Lord your God. Not automatic, not natural. It's something you have to be careful to do. Look with me at chapter 24, verse 23. He says, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. You have to incline your heart toward Him. Think about that. That that takes some effort on your part. Incline your heart toward Him. It's not natural. It's not obvious. It's not automatic. You have to incline it. And by the way, what is automatic, think about this, what is automatic, you're loving something. You're born into the world loving, fearing, serving. We are worshiping creatures. We worship something. You are going to worship something or someone. That's good to know. You are a worshiping creature. God created you in such a way. You are giving all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength to something or someone. You are. You are worshiping something. It's good to identify. What is it? What am I giving myself to? What am I loving, fearing, serving? And then the the text here says you're supposed to incline your heart. Be careful to make sure that whatever it is, you're you're, you're replacing it with the one true and living God. And, And that you're loving Him, that you're serving Him, that you're fearing Him. First and foremost, above everything else. And in the book of Joshua, what it looks like for God's people to love Him, fear Him, serve Him, what it looks like is for them to be strong and courageous and take the land. It's very specific, very specific time. Be strong and courageous and go take the land. For example, Joshua 1, verse 7. It says, only be strong and very courageous. By the way, we see that phrase six times in the book of Joshua. Be strong and courageous. So Joshua 1.7, only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. Here's the question for us this morning. What does it look like for us to be strong and courageous? Because God is not calling us to go take some land that belongs to somebody else. That's a very specific, unique, one-time kind of thing in in, in God's history. Uh, But He is calling us to be strong and courageous. He is calling us to love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, fear Him, serve Him, and be strong and courageous to do what He's called us to do. The question is, what is He calling you to do this morning? That you need to be strong and courageous and do it. Let me give... A couple of possible practical applications here that are closely related to our church and our church on this very morning. We had a couple of baptisms earlier. These are guys who got up before you publicly and got dunked in the water. And there's something about that that requires a little courage to do, you know, to be willing to get in front of a group of people and do that takes a little courage. It takes a little humility. And I think that's a part of it, right? And maybe God is calling you, to follow obediently, to follow their example, to follow the example of Jesus, and to go public and say, I've been crucified with Christ, and I want to sort of act that out by being buried with him in baptism symbolically and raised to walk in newness of life. And maybe for you, the next step of being strong and courageous is to publicly let it be known you're trusting in Christ and to follow the example we've seen here. Uh, I hope you also noticed a ministry. We had a ministry fair this morning prior to the service and the same ministries are going to be set up at the tables after the service as well, at least to the best of my knowledge, they're going to be out there. And I encourage you to stop by and, and get to know the ministries that are going on at our church. For one, just to know what's going on. There's a lot going on. So just get to know what's going on. And by the way, we also have a lot of really practical needs that need to be met right now. And we believe really strongly that what it looks like for you to grow up in Christ is to serve God's people to make a commitment to serve. It doesn't have to be every day here. It could be, you know, a Sunday morning when you're already here. But one of our main purposes of having the ministry fair is for you to get to know what's going on around here. What are the practical needs so you can take the next step and find an area to serve in and be strong and courageous in that. You know, because some people may say, well, I'm just not gifted in that. You know, I'm just not gifted at at that kind of thing. And guess what? Sometimes God calls us even when we're not gifted in things. Right? I'm not sure if they were gifted and marching around seven times and blowing horns and yelling. But God says this is what you do. I don't care if you're gifted at it or not. This is what you do. Right? You may say, well I'm just not much of a church person. You know, it's just my background and uh, you know, I'm just not a church person. So I'll come every now and again. But you know and getting involved and signing up and, and serving somewhere uh, you know, that's just not, not for me. Guess what? God loves to use People you'd never expect. That's the, you're the number one candidate He wants to use. So if you're thinking that, you're actually the number one person He wants to use. He wants to use Rahab. You'd never expect Rahab to get included in the lineage of Jesus Christ. It's like the last person you'd expect. And God says, I want Rahab, a part of the story. I want Rahab, a part of the lineage. And He says, I want you. With the baggage, with whatever it is, however whatever reason you feel unlikely, be strong and courageous and serve God's people. Maybe you say, I just don't have time. We've got a calendar full of things, doing stuff, very busy, just don't have time. God will make time for you. And He'll give you the energy that you need to do it so you can be faithful to Him. And fourth, maybe you say, you know, if I get involved, I know how this goes. I've done this kind of thing before, and then I've got to start dealing with people. You know? And I know how people are. That's going to create drama. And I'm just going to bring all this drama on myself and be involved in ministry and complaining and emails and email threads. And I'm here to tell you, you're probably right. That probably will all happen. (laughs) You're exactly right. Uh, But, you know, God didn't say to you, well, you're so messy with all your drama. I think I'm just going to skip you and go deal with some other people. (laughs) Right? He said to you, in the midst of all your drama and hard-heartedness and difficulty, I still care and I'm still with you and I'm still going to use you. And so God will, God will give you what you need. And if you need to be reassigned to a different ministry, we can do that as well. Now, it's, not life, it's not a life sentence, right? You're not signing your life away. You're saying, I'm willing to do this until God calls me somewhere else. And we, we understand that. So here's the point. Take the next step live like God is the victorious king and serve His people even if it's just a little bit on a Sunday morning when you're already here. And this brings us to the third truth I want to point out. God's people are blessed when they live like He is the king. In Joshua 1.7, he says, be strong, be courageous, do everything I told you to do, Moses told you to do, and he says, and then you will have good success wherever you go. If they will be strong and courageous, do everything God told them to do, namely, take this land, then they will have success in the land. And the success in the land, by the way, we learn is really rest in the land. They get to rest. They get to enjoy the land. And they get to be God's people in the land. It's it's really ultimately all about rest in the land. Look, Look with me, for example, at Joshua 21, verses 44 and 45. It says, And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as He had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. The Lord gave them rest. He promised them a land, He gave them a land. And that's the whole goal, was for them to be in a land where He could be their God and they could be His people and they could live like He's the King and make Him known as the King. That's the whole point. God dwelling with His people in a place. It's always a place. A physical place. It's not a spiritual realm. It's not a spiritual world somewhere far, far away. It's a good land that God created in the very beginning. And He means to redeem it and He will redeem it along with a people who will live in that land and live under His kingship. It always happens in time, space, history. It's a place. It has an address. It's very important. It's a very important part of the story. It's the storyline of the Bible. God wants the people to live like He's the King, to make Him known as the King, so He can dwell with them and they can be with Him. And it happens in a place. And so, so they have the place. They've got the land. They've got rest on all sides. God with them. They're with Him. And they all lived happily ever after, right? <laughs> Wrong. They don't live happily ever after. There's problems under the surface that we can kind of that are alluded to in the story here. For example, in Joshua 24:19, Joshua says to the people, "You are not able to serve the Lord." It's almost like Joshua knows something about these people. Right? <laughs> I wonder if Joshua probably didn't have this mindset back as a young spy when he was spying out the land. Like, yeah, we can take it, we can do it. And now he's like, he's been around, and he's seen them, and he's seen their patterns, and he's dealt with them, and he says, you got to serve the Lord, we will. No, you won't. You won't. It's like Joshua says, I know you well enough. You're not going to. And, And this is not the only indication that there's problems below the surface. Verse 23, Joshua says to them, put away the foreign gods that are among you. There are foreign gods among them. There's never this utopian ideal state that they reach. Perhaps these foreign gods he has in mind are, are gods that they have. It's, it's, it's very likely that he has in mind here the, the, those who are still in the land that Israel failed to drive out. There are still some Canaanites. There are still some Jebusites. We see this in Joshua 15, 16, and 17. They did not drive them all out. We also see this in chapter 9 with the Gibeonites. And these few remaining groups that didn't get driven out are going to come back and cause a lot of havoc down the road. A little bit of leaven is going to influence the whole thing. We also get the sense here that it's the end of a day. It's the end of an era. It's the end of a chapter. Joshua dies. Eleazar, Aaron's son, the priest, dies. Uh, l- look with me at chapter 24, verse 31. It says, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. Here's the good news. Israel served the Lord during the days of Joshua. Here's the bad news. Israel served the Lord only during the days of Joshua. And when Joshua died and when his elders died, it was a new day. And it's not a pretty day. And if you want to read the book of Judges ahead of time for next time, you will see really quickly. It is not a pretty next chapter. And the point is, it, it just doesn't last. It can't last. Something more is needed. Someone more is needed. And the book of Hebrews tells us about this. Someone more. Listen, for example, to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 8-11. through 11. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from His works as God did from His. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Joshua was not able to give them the rest. There remains a rest for the people of God. And God has provided that rest through a second Joshua. The Hebrew name Joshua, and in Hebrew is actually Yeshua. And God provides another Yeshua. He provides a second Joshua, what we call Jesus. And He gives ultimate rest. He can provide the rest that Joshua was unable to provide. Uh, why? Hebrews 4.10 says, you enter His rest by resting from your works. So, you, In other words, you have to come to grips with the fact that you're worshiping, serving, loving. You're giving yourself to someone or something. You've got to come to the reality that that's true and you need to identify what it is. What is it that you're giving yourself to? You're worshiping something or someone. What is it? Who is it? You're a worshiping creature who is naturally worshiping something, you got to identify it. And then, the Bible says, if you will simply rest from your works, stop striving after that, and simply look to Jesus and trust that He's the second Joshua who labored for you, labored in your place, worked for you in His life, a life of obedience, worked for you in His death sacrificial death on the cross, worked for you in His resurrection, is working for you today from God's right hand. If you will look to Jesus and rest from your works and rest from whatever it is you're going after to worship and look to Him and trust He labored for you, you can enter His rest today. And you can have hope and confidence that one day you'll enter His ultimate rest in this new land, new Jerusalem, new heavens, new earth. And, and live with Him and reign with Him. The Bible says we reign and judge with Him. I don't know exactly what that looks like, but I know you want to be a part of it. The author of Hebrews says, let us strive to enter that rest. And it's kind of an irony. Am I supposed to strive or am I supposed to rest? Which one is it? Am I supposed to do something or do nothing? Strive or rest? And I think it's you do whatever it takes to make sure you've entered His rest. As Joshua says, choose this day whom you will serve. It's a a moment of decision. It's too important to just sort of say, well, I think I'll probably be okay in the end. It's too important to say, I think I've done that somewhere in the past. It's too important. You strive, you do whatever it takes to make sure that you have rested from your works, that you're looking to Jesus and trusting in His work for you and enter His rest. Are you tired this morning? Enter His rest. He welcomes you. Listen to what Jesus Himself says. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come to Me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you. Not some other yoke that will kill you. Take My yoke upon you. And learn from Me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is the victorious King who has labored for us in His life, death, and resurrection. Go to Him, trust in Him, believe on Him, and find rest for your soul. Let's pray.